you have the chance to win a Spring Super Sweeps from LAist. Donate $60 for one entry to win a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Check out all the other prizes too when you donate now at laist.com sweeps. Hi, this is Larry Mantle, host of Air Talk on KPCC. Since the start of the coronavirus pandemic, we've had a daily segment on Air Talk devoted to the latest information about COVID-19. As time's gone on, we've looked at vaccines and how the virus and pandemic have affected the lives of Southern Californians. That includes doctors, nurses, epidemiologists, and other medical professionals fighting the virus on the front lines. In each episode, of this podcast, we'll speak with one of our experts on the rotating panel of AirTalk guests who will be sharing their expertise with us daily. You can also listen anytime at las.com, kpecc.org, or subscribe wherever you download podcasts. Very pleased to have with us emergency medicine specialist and co-chair of Cedars-Sinai Medical Center's Department of Emergency Medicine, Dr. Sam Torbati. Dr. Torbati, welcome back. Great to have you with us today. Good morning, Larry. Great to be with you. I want to start off with a story we just heard on NPR's news. This, uh, the Surgeon General Vivek Murthy, uh, issuing a public health advisory on the mental health challenges uh, that young people are dealing with, and they specifically mentioned um, emergency rooms where you know this is being seen with kids who end up in crisis. And I'm wondering if this is something you've observed at Cedars. You know, we uh, we have a large population uh, of patients at Cedars, including uh, adolescents and children, and, and we do see this. It's unfortunate that the uh, pandemic has had this as an additional uh, consequence with such a such a mental toll on on the very young and, and teenagers. So it's it's real, and it's uh, it's good to see the Surgeon General bringing it up to to the to the front of attention. It's an important, it's very, very important for us to address. These are these are sensitive um, issues. Uh, these children are very uh, susceptible, and we need to be aware of this. This is one of the consequences of the pandemic. Uh, the Surgeon General citing uh, 25% of youth have experienced depressive symptoms during the course of the pandemic, 20% experiencing anxiety. Um, this all part of the advisory the Surgeon General has put out. There also appear to be increases in negative emotions or behaviors such as impulsivity and irritability um, associated with conditions such as attention deficit hyperactivity disorder or ADHD. Uh, earlier this year, emergency room visits in the U.S. for suspected suicide attempts were 51% higher for adolescent girls, up 4% for adolescent boys compared to the same time period in early 2019, which, of course, is pre-pandemic. Uh, any thoughts, Dr. Torbati, about uh, how we best intervene to try and help young people who end up in crisis? Well, the Surgeon General has 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 sort of uh, put out a, a number of recommendations, all of which are terrific. I mean, this is not going to be something that any one individual or group can address. This is something that uh, requires government input, social media, community groups, schools, teachers, parents, even students themselves need to be involved. 
at, at the beginning and at the at the beginning of everything, we need to identify that a problem is there and then start discussing the opportunities to address it. And this was a problem before the pandemics, seeing suicide attempts in any teenager, certainly if that suicide leads to death, is an absolute tragedy. And now those numbers have gone up since the uh, pandemic. I, I have teenage kids myself. I hear it in their voices. It's a real, it's, it's real phenomenon that we need to get on top of. We're talking with Cedar sinai emergency medicine specialist, Dr. Sam Torbati. We're at 866-893-KPECC. That's 866-893-5722. Or you can email us. Please include location and your first name at atcomments at kpcc.org. Stuart, in West Los Angeles, asks... What does the term fully vaccinated mean? Does that mean that people have had two doses of an mRNA vaccine? Uh, Does it mean that they are boosted as well as having had the full doses of the vaccine prior? The term is vague, and we've seen breakthrough infections with people who are considered to be fully vaccinated. So Stuart says, I'm unclear what this means. It's a great question, Stuart. And, um, you know, I think the definition is going to change. As of now, fully vaccinated means for individuals to have received both of their mRNA vaccines, the Pfizer or the Moderna, or one of the Johnson & Johnson. Fully vaccinated doesn't mean you're fully protected, however, since we know now that even if you're fully vaccinated, that after a period of time, after roughly six months or so, your antibody response wanes, and that's where the boosters come in. I think our future definitions of fully vaccinated will change over time. All right. Again, we're at 866-893-KPECC. I look forward to your questions for Dr. Torbati. Also, AT comments at kpcc.org. Doreen and Banning emailed us to ask, I, I see so many people wearing their mask under their noses, only covering their mouth and chin. Does this offer any protection to the wearer and to those around people wearing their mask this way? It certainly reduces the effectiveness tremendously. Um, You know, that mask being worn under the nose basically allows people to breathe uh, from their nose outside the mask. So um, if people are going to wear the mask, just like anything, we we should wear it correctly. All right, 866-893-KPECC. And it's never clear to me why people wear it under the nose, if it's a comfort issue for them, if they're wearing a mask that maybe is the uh, elasticity isn't there in the straps because they've worn it so often that it's it's hanging more loosely. I'm not quite sure what what the reason is why, why people wear it that way. Uh, if any listeners have insight, please let me know. Uh, 866-893-KPECC. Mike in Long Beach emailed us to ask, is it okay to give Tylenol and or Benadryl to my child after a COVID vaccine if they develop symptoms like headache or a rash? Yes, Mike, both uh, Tylenol and Benadryl are very safe. And so if, 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 you're, uh, if your children or adults get any minor side effects from the vaccine, it's very safe to take it. Susan in Coral Gables, Florida, emailed us to ask, when I'm traveling on a plane, is it safe to take my mask off when I'm in the bathroom on the plane? It'd be nice to take some nice deep breaths, even if it's just for a few minutes and be mask-free, especially on a cross-country flight. 
Well, it's definitely safer, Susan, to, to do in the bathroom than when you're sitting right next to other folks. So, you know, safety is all relative. And I think of all the time periods or locations in a plane where you can take a break in the bathroom by yourself, taking the mask off is probably the safest. Uh, I'm going to carry over some questions from yesterday that were good ones we didn't have a chance to get to. Ralph in West Hollywood emailed us to ask, uh, said, I haven't had a cold since the pandemic began. I usually get two per year. I attribute this more than anything else to hand washing, says it'd be committed to doing that. What's your sense of why, you know, so many of us have not been sick since the start of the pandemic when we typically would have had nuisance colds and the like. So, Ralph, this is all a consequence of, as you mentioned, hand washing, a little bit of social distancing, and masks. Uh, Masks are incredibly powerful in reducing the spread of viruses, uh, viruses that are transmitted through aerosols and, and through air and through coughing. So as people have been doing a good job of avoiding, or I should say, of wearing masks and hand washing, we've avoided a lot of uh, viruses. And one of our fears is that as people um, do less hand washing and wear masks less, that all of those viruses may come back. And that this year, for example, we may end up with the routine viruses, including influenza, in the upcoming months. 866-893-KPECC. James in Encino says, I've gotten both my mRNA vaccine doses. I'm planning to get my booster this week, but I'm hesitant. I'm wondering if I should wait until we know more about the Omicron variant and have a vaccine available that's more targeted toward it. James, you bring up a really important question. I've heard this from, from friends and colleagues and patients alike. And the reality is that we may not know enough about Omicron for for several weeks or months. And if and even if a uh, new vaccine is going to be developed that's more targeted towards Omicron, the likelihood of that vaccine being developed and making it to the market and, and available is likely on the order of six months or so. So depending on your health, depending on your risk um, of, of uh, becoming ill with COVID, if it's been six months since your uh, primary series, uh, then it's a good idea to get the booster now. And we know that going forward, as we go through Omicron and potentially other variants, that there will probably be uh, recommendations for other boosters, you know, the fourth shot, maybe even the fifth shot. Time will tell. Yeah. Well, in that, you anticipated a question from our listener, Robert in Glendora, who asked, are we going to have to get boosted every year? Will this end up with even a, a booster and a flu shot combined? I, I thought I remember, Dr. Torbati, that there, there were one or more companies actually studying doing a combination shot. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And um, the, the there's so many unknowns still, um, but it, it's biologically and scientifically very plausible that our future state will involve, you know, annual or maybe biannual boosters. And uh, depending on what happens to this virus, how it behaves, how virulent it becomes, and what the host's immune system um, does with um, with this uh, infections, that we may need that. Um, And companies are beginning to look at it. And as the science evolves, we'll have more recommendations.
Richard in Hawthorne says, I'm fully vaccinated for work. I've traveled all throughout Alabama and Florida earlier this year. I think I've probably gotten the virus, just asymptomatic. How widespread is it for people to get COVID-19 and remain asymptomatic? And he wonders, should he still get a booster, even though he figures he's probably been exposed to it? Well, the the, the science that we have... um around recommendations for boosters basically took all comers and and they didn't measure antibody levels necessarily to determine whether somebody should get the booster and whether its effectiveness was there based on previous exposures as much or not. So current guidelines are that even if you may have had an exposure that may have been asymptomatic, that getting a booster is a very good idea. And the recommendations become much more important as as, uh, we look at patients who are potentially a little bit older or have any risk factor for severe disease. The vaccines are so safe um, that getting boosters right now is the right answer. Well, and and I would think particularly for someone who travels a lot for work, you're on airplanes, whatnot, I I would want that extra layer of protection myself. Absolutely. Uh, Lucia in Altadena uh, says, should pregnant women get the booster shot, especially in light of the surge we're seeing right now? And is there a certain trimester they should aim to get the shot in? You know, from my understanding, um, all of the uh, guidelines still apply in terms of uh, women um, getting uh, boosters. um, And uh, I, I don't think any specific recommendations have come forward um, from the CDC around uh, targeting any particular um, trimester. If uh, if you're pregnant, we know that you're at much higher risk of developing severe disease, and getting boosters, if you're eligible, is the best way of, of protecting against it. So I definitely suggest you get it now if you're eligible. Zach in the San Gabriel Valley emailed us in uh, August of this year. Immunocompromised people were told to get a third mRNA vaccine. Now that boosters are advised for everyone, when would a booster, essentially a fourth shot, be recommended for immunocompromised people? Well, Zach brings up a, a, a real important issue, which is that of the fourth shot. Um, which was discussed. It, I think it became a little bit confusing as the new guidelines came forward around boosters. But there are some guidelines for patients with specific, very significant immunocompromised states um, to get a basically a, a third shot 28 days out from their uh, second um, vaccine. And the booster now applies six months after. So if uh, Zach is uh, suffering from uh, any condition where he's severely immunocompromised, I definitely discuss it with his physician and to see whether he, he a, a fourth dose is recommended for him at this point or not. We're at 866-893-KPCC. You can tweet your question for Dr. Torbody at AirTalk. Please include your location as well as your Twitter handle. And if you email us at atcomments at kpcc.org, please include your location as well as as well as your first name. Just wonderful to get a sense of place of where everybody's asking questions from. Um Z and Hawthorne emailed saying, I, I got the J&J vaccine and then a J&J booster. As I understand, the vaccine was originally designed for a two-shot course. I'm wondering if a third shot of J&J would be advised and if it would be available to me. 
So Z, um, the J&J vaccine was originally developed as just a one-time shot. The booster recommendations came forward for a second shot. So as of now, we only have safety data and recommendations for two J&Js. We don't have any recommendations for a third. So until we have more data, we want to make sure that the recommendations that come forward are all evidence-based, that one, you benefit from it, and that it's safe. So for now, I think you're doing great. Two shots of J&J have have you covered? I had thought that that originally they were looking at that as a two dose, but then only tested it and had you know such strong response with a with a single dose. Was it was it always thought of that it would be a single dose? There was, I think, the company did some testing and they landed on a, a, a single being effective, and they forwarded data for the FDA and CDC to approve it under that. And so, again, when it comes to, you know, vaccines, any therapeutic uh, uh, agents, we want to make sure that the recommendations are not just effective, but they're also safe. We want to make sure that we don't uh, recommend something that we haven't tested so far. And so it's potential that a third dose is safe. We just don't know yet because we haven't tested it. And that's where the science comes in. And it's possible in the next, you know, six to 12 months that those recommendations will change. See, things seem to be moving at a, an enormously rapid pace these days. Justin in Marina Del Rey said, I had terrible vertigo for a month after my recent booster. I'm wondering if I should hold off on further booster shots or, or if I should try and get a, a health, health exemption for them. Uh, have we had... Um, cases where vertigo has been reported as, as uh, a side effect? So vertigo is one of the very low rate side effects reported. Of course, patients also get vertigo even without vaccinations. And so the association between vaccine and vertigo is not, as, uh, is not a strong one. It's not one of the side effects that, that's, that's uh, noted to have a high prevalence. So um, I, I think it's a good idea, you know, for Justin um, to maybe have a conversation with his physician, get a quick exam, make sure there's nothing else going on other than, ver- than vertigo that's causing his symptoms. And then in terms of additional boosters and such, it really depends on his age, his risk factors, and um, you know where he is in the, in the vaccination process. All right. 866-893-KPECC. We have another reported case of the Omicron variant here in Southern California. This one reported by the Long Beach Health Department. The person who has tested uh, positive for the Omicron variant is fully vaccinated and we're glad to hear asymptomatic returned to Long Beach November 29th after international travel, which was not to the Southern Africa region. But we have yet another local case. Dr. Torbati, just, you know, I know it's very early on. We don't have good data yet on Omicron. We have the rapid spread of it in uh, South Africa that's reported by the health officials there. But it does not seem so far in the cases we're seeing, most of which I've seen uh, reported or breakthrough cases of vaccinated people, it does not appear that it is causing particularly serious symptoms of COVID-19. What are you able to make of Omicron so far? Well, like you said, Larry, the, the data is really too early, but the early data that we have, especially from the larger uh, cases from 
South Africa suggests that the severity is low, that it's, it's not an aggressive variant in terms of producing severe disease. That said, we still don't know. Um, and the, the, the large cases that is being reported out of South Africa involve younger patient populations. And we know that younger people do better when it comes to dealing with this virus than older patients. So time will tell, but so far we're, we're reassured um, that Omicron, uh, although it appears to be much more contagious, it's much less severe. And we hope that this trend holds up. And I, I know I've asked this every day for listeners who hear this segment every day, but I'm, I'm so curious whether you think it's possible that what might be this um, uh, greater transmissibility of Omicron could push Delta out to some extent. Could it outcompete it? Certainly may. Um, and, you know, Delta had a biological advantage over alpha, and that's how it became the predominant uh, variant. There's no reason to think that Omicron won't supplant Delta. Um, and we're beginning to see that. The, 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 the testing out of South Africa uh, with the genomic uh, surveillance suggests that already some 70, over 70% of, of, of the uh, of viruses there at this point are Omicron. That's pretty Wow, rapid. that's fast. There is no reason to think that the same thing won't happen across the globe. All right. Donna in San Fernando says, uh, I'm immune compromised. I received the J&J vaccine back in April and received a Moderna booster three weeks ago. Should I consider myself now fully vaccinated or uh, should I, since I only got one of the mRNA as my booster, should I get a third shot? Well, um, depending on the severity of your immunosuppression, you you may not need it. I mean, at this point, if if you've had a a Moderna booster, you should be doing well. Uh, There is a very small subset of patients that have severe immunosuppressed states. These are patients with transplants and heavy-duty medications that are used to manage them. But for the general immunosuppressed patient population, a mRNA vaccine after a J&J you're good to go. And we hope that it lasts a good 6 to 12 months, but we'll talk some more in the upcoming months, and there may be some recommendations for you in the next 6 to 12 months. 866-893-KPECC. You can call with your question for Cedars-Sinai Medical Center Emergency Medicine Specialist, Dr. Sam Torbati. He co-chairs Emergency Medicine at Cedars. And uh, you can email your questions at atcomments at kpecc.org. Please include your location and your first name. Uh how are you socializing now in this booster era of of COVID nineteen? I say for myself, I feel, you know, pretty confident. But I'm in a world where pretty much everyone isn't just vaccinated but boosted, and so I I feel pretty good getting together with people. But how are you feeling about it, Doctor Torvati? Well, I felt very good about it in previous weeks. Um, and now <laughs> Not so much now, though. Omicron around the corner, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, good point. I think as we uh, as we learn more about Omicron and its contagiousness and how severe uh, of an illness it, it creates, we, we may adjust our practices. But the recommendations and, and the tools we have available to us haven't changed tremendously, um, you know, still you know, uh, people who are not vaccinated, please get vaccinated. Those who are eligible for 
boosters, please get a booster. Uh, if people have a choice of outdoor activities versus indoor, outdoor is always safer. And, um, you know, at this point, uh, certainly your audience and uh, is, is very, very intelligent. They know they know what to do. Uh, we just have to now educate everybody else to practice uh, safer socializing practices. Yeah, and, and, you know, this really calls on people, as we've talked about a lot in these segments, to um, develop a degree of sophistication about risk management. And that's difficult because much of it is fraught emotionally with, with our fears or or the opposite side of that, um, maybe a tendency to put our fears out of mind and be a bit more cavalier than is in our best interest. And I'm just wondering for you yourself, even as a physician, a medical professional, do you have to spend some time really thinking about risk management for yourself in, in your personal life and what you choose to do or not do and how you do it? I mean, I uh, I go to work every day, uh, starting at noon today. In about 30 minutes, I'll be seeing patients in the ER, and, and a handful may end up having um, COVID. So uh, as a physician, I need to continue to kind of monitor my behaviors at work. And then as I'm home, I need to monitor sort of my behaviors, monitor my symptoms. As I engage with um, my parents who are older, my father who's immunocompromised, I need to be cautious. Um, I, I think you, you, you nailed it, Larry, which is that um, society needs to continue to learn. And we, we can't put our sort of head in the sand and pretend it's not going to affect us and, and that we shouldn't care. Um, I think everybody needs to care about this. And as people get more educated, they can make more educated uh, practices and be safer around themselves and their loved ones. Mark in Rancho Santa Margarita in South Orange County emailed, say, my wife and I are both 66. We've been fully boosted with Moderna. Recently, we got flu-like symptoms. My wife got tested, was negative. Would that suggest I, too, am negative? Um, a, a, a test, a single test is not um, 100% accurate, and certainly a test for one individual doesn't translate fully. So if you're still symptomatic, I would I would get tested. And if your wife remains symptomatic, a repeat test is a good idea too. Are you seeing much flu at the ER at Cedars? Not yet. We're we're monitoring very carefully. I mean, there's some sporadic cases that have come up and we're preparing for algorithms around testing patients and managing patients with um, therapeutics, depending on where they are with the disease, certainly if they're early in the disease. And there's some new testing uh, uh, that's become available to us where we can combine the tests together so that we can do tests for both using one swab. So hospitals, you know, um, are all beginning or have already thought through how we're going to manage sort of this year's um, flu, especially as we get into combination of flu and, and COVID together. Yeah, what what uh, sorts of preparation, if anything different, are are you doing at Cedars with uh, Omicron cases, with what's thought might be to some degree a winter surge, even if it's not a huge one? Um, how is how is the hospital and and other medical centers gearing up for that? At Cedars, we are thinking about what it would look like if we had to, you know, hospitalize a lot of patients again. Um, we're looking at our alternative space, uh, spaces, both in the ER and the medical center, to take care of patients. We're looking at staffing models. We're looking at more efficient ways of, of testing and managing patients. We have our, 
our tents up and ready to go if we need to use them again. And um, we're monitoring, you know, uh, the activity day to day, week to week. We have data available to us to monitor what kinds of cases come through. And it's challenging, I must say, even for a very large hospital like ours, it's challenging uh, because there's already a lot of other patients that need hospital emergency medical services. So we're, we're keeping our fingers crossed, and we hope that it doesn't turn out to be another crazy wave like last year. Yeah. Uh, but it may certainly may, so we, we're prepared for it. All right. And, uh, you know, as, as you deal with this, I assume Cedars, like other medical facilities, are dealing with staffing challenges that you've seen people leave the medical profession and, you know, burnout certainly very real as we've gone nearly two years through this pandemic. Uh, is, is that something that concerns you as much, if not more, than the having the actual infrastructure to treat more people? No, absolutely. I mean, you can't take care of patients without without staff. And the uh, issues that you mentioned are very real at Cedars and at every other medical center where uh, staffing uh, challenges are real um, with burnout and, and changes in people's thinking about their careers. But more importantly, people are also getting sick. So if somebody gets sick, they can't come to work unless we're sure that it's not COVID and, and they've gone through the right protocol. And as we get into cold and flu season, more and more people are going to get cold and flu symptoms. So that means they can't come to work until we're sure that it's not COVID. And certainly if it turns out to be COVID, they're out for 10 days. So the, the issues of, of supply and demand of healthcare uh, staff is a real um, issue as well that, that can't just be uh, um, sort of uh, solved um, so it's, it's one thing that keeps me up at night, that's for sure. Understandably. Dr. Tobati, it's always a pleasure to have you with us. Thank you so much. And we offer all our best to you and your colleagues at Cedars-Sinai Medical Center and all the other terrific medical institutions here in Southern California. We appreciate it very much. Thank you so much, Larry. It's always a pleasure to talk to you and, and uh, your, your audience who are so incredibly articulate and educated. Um, just an absolute pleasure to be with you. Thanks for listening to this episode of COVID in LA. If you'd like to stay up to date with the latest coronavirus news, you can listen anytime at las.com, at kpcc.org, or subscribe wherever you download podcasts. See you next time and stay safe. I'm Larry Mantle. This program is made possible in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, a private corporation funded by the American people.